What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today is June 10th, 2020, and it is also hashtag shutdown STEM day. And so I thought it was fitting to share this conversation with Dr. Carl Reed, who is the executive director of the National Society of Black Engineers. Dr. Reed received his undergraduate and master degrees from MIT before getting his EDD at Harvard. And as the executive director of the NSBE, he works to increase the number of culturally responsible black engineers who excel academically, succeed professionally, and positively impact the community. This conversation was recorded last summer, so keep in mind that some of the statistics Dr. Reed mentions are only accurate as of 2019. As I said before, today is Shutdown STEM Day, and before I dive into my conversation with Dr. Reed, I'll say this. I know a lot of people in STEM fields, and I also know enough about trends to recognize that the people who are being hired to work in these professions are going to shape much of what our society looks like for the next quarter century and beyond. The anti-racist work that teachers are undertaking and that is occurring in academia as catalyzed by the police murder of George Floyd must also happen in STEM fields because there is a true danger in society's biases being built into any new technology that is created. Those working in STEM must push for equity first because in the same way that Facebook can sow dissension across parties, technologies can also be made to improve the lives of frequently oppressed groups. If you aren't already, please make sure that you give a follow to me on Twitter at ByJohnPhillips and subscribe to the show on whatever podcast app you use. Without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Carl Reed. Thank you so very much for your time. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being here. So before we get into the K-12 sphere, I think it's important just to talk about the general aims of NSBE, and what its mission is, and what brought you to the organization. Thank you, John. Well, the, the National Society of Black Engineers was, was founded in 1975 on the campus of Purdue University by six students uh, from the south side of Chicago who uh, wanted to share their success in turning around what was an 80% attrition rate in 1971 to a 60% plus graduation rate for their African-American students in engineering by 1975. So they put out a call to other engineering colleges, letters to deans around the country, and 34 deans sent 40 students to West Lafayette, Indiana, uh, and that was when they decided to charter uh, what was a Society of Black Engineers, the National Society of Black Engineers, in the spring of 1975. Uh, since then, we've become one of the largest student-governed societies based in the United States with 24,000 members. Um, our mission is to increase the number of culturally responsible Black engineers who excel academically, succeed professionally and positively impact the community. And that mission really speaks to our three different constituencies. We have uh, pre-collegiate members who are arranged from third grade to 12th grade 
in 225 chapters around the world. We call those Nesby Juniors, mm -hmm. um, Nesby Junior uh, chapters. Um, we have about 325 collegiate chapters, and they continue to be the heart of our organization. Um, and there are about 14,000 members around the world. And then we have about 83 chapters of about 3,700 thereabouts uh, professionals. These are those who are have graduated. Uh, many of them are at the PhD level or in in practice in engineering, um, practicing their um, their craft. Um, and there are and those chapters as well are around the world. Um, so in addition to our mission, we've um, we set a set a big bold goal back in 2015 uh, to establish a 10-year strategic plan to work with colleges and universities to triple the number of black engineers the nation's colleges and universities produce. Uh, back, back then, it was about 3,500 degrees were awarded to African Americans in the United States, and we set a goal of 10,000 annually by 2025. And so we are kind of well on our way to, um, to moving the needle uh, nationally, uh, as well as internationally, but the 10,000 focus is, is U.S. And it does speak to some of the um, your podcasts and some of your interests in, in the kind of strategies that we're employing to really dramatically change the face of engineering in the United States and around the world. So that leads in really nicely to th this idea of when you build a strategic plan out, there is always a why that dictates everything that follows after. And so what is the importance of tripling that number of black engineers? Why is it so vital to the engineering field to see that number rapidly multiply? Yeah, this is, it's a great question. And I'm a big uh, fan of Simon Sinek and Start With Why. And, um, and we've actually led our leadership through a couple of exercises to, to really define our why. And, um, and I've been uh, spending a fair amount of time thinking about that and writing about that as well. Um, so before I, before I answer that question, I'll just note that even though our name is National Society of Black Engineers, we are not exclusive to African-American or black members. Uh, we, we have no membership requirement that, 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 an engine, that uh, one is, a, is black or, or, or even an engineer, frankly. Um, so I just wanted to make that point clear. Um, but back to the why, it really is around uh, the talent that we're, we're leaving on the table. So when you think about uh, underrepresented minorities, these are African-American, Latinx, and Native American, only 14% of all the degrees that are awarded in engineering are awarded to these three groups. And yet they make up a little over 30% of the general population. So we're leaving a lot of talent on the table um, that is just untapped. Talent that could be used to solve complex problems. So I kind of think about, in answer to your question, the why in, in three areas. One, the problems that we have to solve uh, as a country and as a world. The National Academies a few years ago uh, put out 14 grand challenges that national uh, the engineers have to be give attention to solving everything from clean water to energy to to food production to medical technology um, to cybersecurity uh, etc we've got to solve 
these grand challenges uh, in order for us to have a quality of life in the, into the future. Um, secondly, um, I like to say that engineers are great at, um, uh, you, it, even if you get an engineering degree, you don't have to be an engineer to really apply what we've learned, the critical thinking, analytical reasoning, problem solving, those skills, those intellectual skills are important regardless of what field we're in. So I'd like to train STEM thinkers or engineering thinkers, even if they go into law, medicine, or teaching, or or even um, kind of, you know, uh, athletics, whatever they decide to do, we need more people to think critically. Uh, and then the last thing is, is really around diversity. Uh, diversity matters. What a lot of companies uh, have come to realize is that diversity, it's got to be a strategic imperative in order for them to remain and stay competitive. Diversity of thought is, is, is driven by diversity of identity. Uh, people who bring different perspectives, whether it's race and ethnicity, uh, disability, they, they kind of create new and innovative solutions. Uh, that that can be drawn to solve some of those problems that I pointed out earlier. So that's the really why, why it's so important to triple the number so that we can get more talent deployed to solve these complex problems uh, that, that engineers absolutely love to do. And when we talk about what those really big picture challenges are that we're not just facing nationally, we're facing globally, we need, like you said, not only a diversity of thought, but just also a diversity of past experience. I think that if you were to go through the history of sci-fi novels and look at the problems that were created, if you had just had people that had different experiences just in the room with the person that ultimately ends up creating something very destructive or something very painful, all you needed is a diversity of thought to make sure that some of those ideas don't end up happening. And so not only is it important to have that diversity to make sure that we're able to get done the things that we need to get done, but also I think about this in education a lot. We also need a diversity of experience to make sure that we don't make really damaging mistakes. And Engineers are powerful in terms of the change that they can affect, and without that diversity, the impact can go sideways relatively quickly. Uh, that is uh, that is a brilliant uh, perspective on this, and I've often said that um, you know there's a line in Hamilton, the the, the play, you know, you want to be in the room where it happens. Well, if you don't have a diversity of, of thought and perspectives, then then, then you have the uni mind or the board, <laughs> right? Where you know everybody kind of walks in lockstep. Versus somebody said, "Hey, if you if you roll this out, what impact will that have on low-income communities? What impact will that have on African Americans?" Recently, I flew into Nashville, Tennessee, and it's no shade on Nashville. It just so happens that it it it, it, it happened. And I, I went into the, the, the restroom uh, to use the restroom and put my hands under the faucet and it didn't work. You know, it was an automatic uh, sensor based, uh, IR based, I believe, you know, faucet. And so, you know, usually if that happens, you move to the next faucet and that didn't work. 
And then I moved to the third and it didn't work. And a, a, a white gentleman came right behind me to went over to the, the faucet, one of the, the two that it didn't work, put his hands under it and it worked. And it just, mm. you know, showed me that the, the designers did not um, normalize or, 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 or structure this, this system to, to actually um, uh, sense my skin tone. And so I actually asked him to put his hand under my faucet <laughs> so that I could wash my hands. But the point here is that, you know, if you have the, the people in the room who kind of come from a variety of backgrounds experiences, we could just make sure that in the QA process that the products are tested to to serve a broader community. So that's just a, a simple example of of of, of uh, and 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 um, illustration of uh, really your your point. You've got to have the people in the room to challenge perspectives so that we can come up with better solutions. And so when we start thinking about how to get those people in the room, for for you guys, it's creating a pipeline. And so how is it that students that are interested in going into engineering, these can be, like you said, you, you have some kids that, that are NSB juniors at, what, eight, um, eight years old, nine years eight old, if years, they're in third grade. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And so if that's the case, what are some of the barriers that Black students from you know, third grade on face when it comes to entering into engineering majors when they may when they get to colleges and then engineering professions ultimately yeah i just really a shout out to my dad who uh, went to college for two years and then dropped out joined the navy but he had an engineering mindset and he made sure that each of um, my siblings and i had the opportunities that were aligned with our interests and i'll come back to that but my dad had me, he saw in me this curiosity at the age of three, and he had me repeat Massachusetts Institute of Technology, just as a, hey, Carl, what is, what is, you know, what does MIT stand for? You know, and once I can learn how to spell, I would just say MIT, because Massachusetts was too difficult to say. Um, and then at five, you know, I, he saw that I had this interest in trains. I just, I still do have, I just um, really appreciate trains, the technology, um, the precision. And so he's, you know, he introduced the notion of engineer when I was five. And so from that point on, he cultivated those interests in, in engineering. And here I am with two degrees from MIT. So what we are, what we try to do at Nesby is we try to effectively, we've been replicating that model uh, by, by, by addressing those, what I call the four uh, obstacles to um, engineering at scale for black and Latino and low income communities. It's not just a, a black thing. It's, it's really around opportunity. The first is awareness. Most people don't have a dad who introduced them to the word engineering at the age of five. Um, most people think about engineers as someone with a hard hat, um, a white male working out in the field, um, building something, a bridge or, or something like that, and have no relevance to their own interests. So making them aware, that's the first stage, um, eliminating the awareness gaps about engineering. Most of the young people that I, we work with, if I had a quarter for the number of times I heard the story, hey, somebody saw that it was good in math in 11th grade, 10th grade, 12th grade, and said you should become an engineer. 
Well, it shouldn't happen by happenstance like that, and it should not happen so late. Um, so making young people aware. Number two is access to high quality STEM and, and particularly math learning experiences. Uh, you might not know this, but only 57% of African Americans in high minority districts have access to the full range of math and science in their high school. Four years of math, four years of college level science. Um, and so those 43% who don't even have access, even if they took every course that was available to them, would not qualify them for the flagship university uh, in their in their state. And so we got to deal with the structural things, the access to high quality learning experience. So awareness, access, and the third two, the, the, the third um, area is confidence. If you don't have access, you don't have awareness, then how confident are you in persisting through the challenges and the, the, uh, the difficulty, frankly, um, the hard work of becoming a math proficient uh, uh, person or, or a science proficient person or an engineer. Um, I got a 38 in my first exam at MIT in physical chemistry. And if I did not have the support around me, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, so you've got to really have the confidence um, to be successful. And then the last thing is just proficiency. Um, all of this, those roads lead to proficiency. And, and that is if you're if you really don't have access and if you're not confident in persisting, then you're really not going to be persistent in math. And if you're not proficient in math in fourth grade, unlikely to be proficient in math by eighth grade. And you're unlikely, therefore, to be on the path to finish calculus by 12th grade. And then you're already behind. So so I would say, yeah, acts, awareness, access confidence and proficiency are the major obstacles. Some of those are structural, some of those are individual, some of those are cultural, um, but those are those are the major obstacles. So what would you suggest to a district that has a high percentage of Black, Latinx, low-income students who we all know have the potential to do great things, what, like you said, whether they ultimately end up as engineers or not, but they all have the tools necessary to have that engineering mindset, that engineering spirit. What would you suggest a district that has that um, demographic makeup do to make sure that Black students are motivated and prepared to go to college for engineering and to pick up those skills? Yeah, those are, those are good questions. It's the age-old question that uh, many educators have been asking, uh, many uh, foundations, private foundations have been asking, and, uh, and, and, uh, and corporations have been asking that too in, in terms of um, addressing some of the, the challenges uh, uh, city by city, region by region, uh, state by state. Um, I would start with just, if you think about those obstacles, right, I would start with awareness. So, so how, can we, how can we make young people aware of, of what engineers do in, the, in, a, in a true sense? Um, I like the idea of field trips, right? I mean, just 
field trips, exposure. Uh, I was in Ghana. We've got up over 50 chapters in Ghana. And we took about 150 young people to the hydroelectric plant, uh, one of the hydroelectric plants that producing you know, megawatts of power. And we had a tour of that plant and how we converted water energy into electricity. Um, you know, those things, those, those trips have the um, the powerful uh, imprimatur it leaves on, on young people. Um, my dad used to take me to the hangars at JFK because I also, in addition to trains, I love planes. And uh, he was a police officer at one point. And so, you know, he just flashes badge and we kind of walk through the hangars. Um, those kind of experiences are powerful. And unfortunately, many school districts are cutting back on those. Uh, but it doesn't have to be expensive here, especially here in Washington, D.C. and others. There are free um, museums and others. Speakers and, and projects that that give relevance to uh, the, the, the the engineering field that connected to the students' interests. So I use the train you know, story to really illustrate a point that that everything I learned about engineering had to do with trains. In fact, I learned how to swim when I was 11 because I was I was fearful if I drove a train and went into over a bridge, I'd need to <laughs> rescue my passenger. So I was just really bent on becoming an engineer uh, in that, that way. So awareness, early awareness, the connected to the, the student's interests. Uh, second is access, um, high quality learning experiences. There has to be some policy put in place to kind of raise the level of math learning experiences in schools that are not traditional. I mean, the idea that that a child can sit in a, a class for 45 minutes or 50 minutes and learn didactically this material is so 1900s, right? Um, but, but flipping the classroom in creative ways and allowing the young people to see videos and online learning and connecting um, you know, math and science to, to things that are relevant. We started at MIT when I came back to run the engineering outreach program office, uh, a science of baseball program, where every, every during the summer, every week was focused on a different baseball skills and the, learn, the kids learned the, the math, the statistics, probability, and the science associated with baseball. Um, this was, you know, right after the Red Sox won the first World Series in 80-something in years. So, you know, just making it fun and relevant is, is key. So awareness, access. And then I think just back to that whole confidence thing. You get confident based on success, based on seeing kind of vicariously others being successful. And uh, that's the Albert Bandura's work on, on um, self-efficacy. Um, as well as hearing trusted voices tell young people that you can be successful. Like my dad said, you're going to be an engineer one day. Um, it, it, you know, being intentional for young people instead of telling them you're never going to be successful, really flipping that script and telling them that you are going to be successful. In the Christian tradition, we call it uh, writing the revelation and making it plain telling young people that they can be what they can become and they will rise to that uh, level experience uh, and so starting early is key and I, I would you know I would just start there 
on the policy issues, on the access, on the, the awareness and field trips and other kind of exposure opportunities, and then the giving attention to building confidence in, in the communities that is so uh, wrought with, with, uh, with deficit thinking uh, very often. And there's a really nice interplay with all of those ideas, because one thing that I found when, and I'm an English teacher by trade, but when we went on, these were my 10th graders, we went on a field trip to the Field Museum in Chicago, and it was so wonderful for those four hours that we spent there to see students engage in a different way. And what you said is so right that to assume that anyone can sit in a room and learn the same way for 180 or 185 days a year, and you expect them to be proficient and passionate and confident in that material, it's sending the wrong idea. And when we went on those field trips, it really drove that message home because I was seeing students that I knew were struggling greatly in science and math. Suddenly they were alive and they, they had so much energy and so much motivation to learn more. And it was a powerful experience to really imprint that I, th those core ideas that you just spoke about into my mind. Because after that, all I could think about is, how we're, how can we basically you know bring in the the money and and plan our time effectively to get kids out more because if we do that the amount of confidence and passion that would be stoked would be incredible you, you uh, once again john you hit the nail on the head um we started a, a saturday academy for ninth grade and then we want, worked it up to 12th grade um young people in the Boston and Cambridge area called the Saturday Engineering Experience and a Discovery, Seed, Seed Academy. And uh, it was 10 weeks in the fall, 10 weeks in the spring, starting in the, uh, the ninth grade. And each semester would focus on a different engineering theme. So they start with mechanical engineering, then they move to aeronautical engineering, the civil engineering. And what we discovered is the young people who are, were chronic C students in the classroom, so their grades were just C, 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 they were the best at building, applying these math and science to build, let's say one semester we had them build catapults and they learn projectile motion, they learn forces, they learn vectors, they learn um, they learned all of the the, the, the the science and the math associated with with developing these these catapults. And then the young person, that's young parent, I remember him, the C student, he won the competition. He built a catapult that was so precise, it hit its target every single time. Wow. And it just kind of opened our eyes to to uh, the fact that he has never really saw, he never really saw why, to your earlier question, why he was learning what he was learning until we were able to close that gap and make that connection. Now, the, the idea that the Seed Academy brought, um, we, we had a lot more flexibility than a typical uh, teacher in a public school because they have to adhere to all these the standards, which I believe in the standards. But the idea of being creative 
to apply those standards, because we use the standards in this program. Uh, at, at the time, it was curriculum frameworks in Massachusetts, which ultimately now it's everyone's talking about the Common Core. Um, but we use those frameworks to, to be creative in these kinds of uh, lessons. So the other thing that I'll just point out real quickly is that um, a, a, a gentleman who is with the Kaufman Foundation did his dissertation and found that the students whose learning styles, preferred learning styles, matched their teachers' preferred learning styles did better in the classroom. Unless the, the student had some sort of connection with that teacher outside of class, for example, was an advisor for a student group or was a coach on an athletic team. So if we have a preferred style as teachers and not made aware that our students see things differently and can adapt our pedagogy accordingly, then we are, we are locked into serving one type of student in that classroom. And that's why I believe we have the distribution that we do. For sure. And it's it's eye-opening anytime I've sat in a professional development, either as a teacher, but also when I was on the research end of things, and seeing both the passive and the active distance that teachers have from new ideas. And it makes sense. Like, naturally, we're, people are creatures of habit. And it is if you believe that I do this thing well, why should I change? And no one is coming in and telling you. It's like, well, yes, currently you are serving this, you know, this group at our school very well. But maybe those students that failed your class last year would have passed if you were willing to have your eyes open and try a few different things. It, it has been jarring to me to see how comfortable people are who really should be trying every day to say, how am I going to make sure that I'm at least giving every student in my classroom one thing a day, a week, that activates their passion and their interest in their learning? And that takes a lot of work, and it throws teachers into a sense of discomfort. But I'm all for discomfort if it leads to more impactful results. And, you know, that's that's an easy pitch for you and I to talk about here. It's more about how do we make that a mainstream opinion. But I do agree with you that when you see what spaces can look like when you change the paradigm, it can be incredibly impactful. I, I yes, and I, I and I think you and I both agree that teachers uh, carry the yeoman's work in this in this field, and that um, you know I always say that if I had a dollar to invest in education, somebody has a dollar invested in teachers because there's a multiplicative effect on 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 you know changing lives. Um, and I think I joke about this. I said teachers should be paid like athletes, and athletes should be paid like teachers. Right. Um, so I have a great deal of of respect for teachers. I, I I love meeting them out on the street and 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 the work that they do. Having said that, they are operating in a structure that prevents them 
from being as creative. Now, I'm, I'm making sort of blanket statements. There are uh, creative approaches to learning, usually in uh, very wealthy uh, districts, school districts, where the ratios are 13 or 15 to 1, uh, when you can use constructivist learning and interview the students and build new curriculum on existing knowledge, et cetera. But when you're at 30, 35 in a classroom, um, and it's very, very difficult to do unless you run it military style like Kip does. Right. So, so I, I, I do think that there are ways to do this, but we know from, from you know, learning theory that a child will only remember 10% of what he or she learns, a child or adult, he or she learns in a lecture, um, but, but, but much more so will learn when there's an active learning experience uh, some years ago, MIT changed its its freshman physics course. So these are already really outstanding young people who, you know, straight A's, high SAT scores, getting to freshman physics, and they moved from a lecture recitation format to an active learning format, and they did a um, kind of the double blind. Some students chose the. I'm not sure if they was double blind or they were assigned or 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 the student selected. But some chose chose the, um, the the traditional model and some chose the active learning model, and then they tested those students afterward um, on their competency. The same exams were given, and the active learning students not only did better than the traditional uh, model students, but then they they evaluated their how much they retained after the class, and the, those who learned actively learned, I mean, remembered more about the content. So so they eliminated the lecture recitation format for thereafter. Um, and I, I think that, that, you know, we know that that's the case, but it's an expensive model, requires expertise, it requires smaller classrooms, requires a, a different mode, and you're not going to change your approach unless you've done your own cost-benefit analysis. If the perceived cost of changing is greater than the perceived benefit, to your point about the teachers, then they're not going to change. Right. Um, but they will change if the perceived benefit is greater than the perceived cost. So we have to really incentivize uh, teachers and others and school districts to make the changes, to flip the classrooms, to invest in the technology that's necessary to boost the, the kind of learning we expect. So I'll get you out on this question. And we've talked a lot about some really, really positive signs and stories that you've seen over the, you know, the your time in the work. But if you could point to one sign or one story that, you know, immediately comes to mind with regards to us moving in the right direction. And so I guess we can also frame it in terms of when you think about getting to that number of tripling the number of black engineers, what story or sign have you seen recently that gives you life, gives you hope that you're going to hit that number? Well, the, the, the data, first of all, I always say, let the data speak. So since we announced our strategy uh, three years, uh, four, now four years ago, we've seen a 28% increase as a country 
on the number of degrees awarded to African Americans in engineering. So we're near 4,500 from about 3,500. So that's a positive sign. Some of that is driven by you know demographics, but 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 largely driven by um, a number of other factors um, in the the K to 12 space, but but also higher education is giving greater attention to retaining students of color, which is which is also part of our strategy, um, making sure that they have the tools that they have employed to ensure that they understand how to retain students better uh, once they enroll in engineering. Uh, Nesby has produced a, a toolkit, a student retention toolkit that's available on Amazon that, um, that provides uh, colleges with 10 strategies, um, practical steps to implement to improve the success. Um, so we're seeing some signs. And I'll just say this, that the there are a number of um, they're, they're kind of historical markers on t a technology, um, and they were illustrated in Walter Isaacson's book uh, called Innovators. Um, and, and the book really uh, kind of walked us through the history of, of the digital revolution. Um, and you might notice, you might notice as you're reading this book, that, and he points this out, that whenever there was some sort of a, uh, a sea change in technology from uh, vacuum tubes to transistors, uh, from, from mainframe computers to personal computers, there was also a sea change in society. Uh, the hippie movement, uh, the, the 70s um, kind of characterized a certain type of uh, a separation from um, the norms, uh, et cetera. There were, there were a number of these things that par paralleled the technology movement that gave rise to it. And Malcolm Gladwell talks about in the, in the tipping point, uh, the factors that, that influence these tipping points. I believe we're in another tipping point. And the tipping point and the vortex or the, 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 the technology, I would just say more broadly, is this push towards STEM talent, the recognition that STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, is driving our economy in ways that um, we've, we, we, it, we haven't seen in a while. Um, you think about the artificial intelligence, you think about machine learning and, and, and how it's become so ubiquitous, a whole generation of young people, the digital natives that don't know anything but technology. But there's also another push, the social push, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And companies are recognizing that they no longer are pushing for diversity for moral grounds, it's a strategic imperative. So this duality that we're seeing, this push for STEM talent and STEM ideas and STEM thinking and STEM discoveries and diversity, equity, inclusion, really is, is one of these kind of dual uh, catalysts that uh, it will be shaping the face of these fields over the next five, 10 years. And it's a remarkable time to be in. So I'm very, very hopeful uh, that there's not just a push from people like me, an organization like ours, but there's a pull from industry and higher education uh, to, to really transform the way these, uh, these fields look, uh, these cities look, and, and in fact, the country looks. And it's an exciting time for your organization, I'm sure, to feel that momentum and to be able to capitalize on it in the way that you all are. 
must be a motivating thing every single day. It, it, it is. And I, I'll just say even our membership has grown 24 percent year over year. Um, um, just from last year to this year, our membership has grown. Um, we're already at 24,000 or so. We were at 19,000 uh, last year by the end of July. So uh, we're not even at the end of our fiscal year and we're seeing membership grow. Uh, last year at our annual convention in March in Detroit, we had over 14,000 people came to come to our convention, participating in, a, in the convention. Um, and that was the largest we've ever had, over 340 exhibitors on our career fair floor, from companies to universities to, to nonprofits, recruiting talent. So, um, and, and my, my counterparts at the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers and the Society of Women Engineers and American Indian Science and Engineering Society, they're seeing the same growth. Uh, so this is not just Nesby. This is that that vortex, this 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 duality that I spoke about earlier that we're all benefiting from. Uh, but but at the end of the day, this is not about Nesby or SWE or SHIP or ACES. <clears throat> this is about our country. This is about our world. This is about the problems that we have to solve. And we have the answer. Um, and I'm not talking about only I can fix it. But we have the answer <laughs> to, to solve many of these complex problems. And, um, and uh, we just know that some of those answers are in the inner cities and in, in, um, in Detroit and in Chicago. They're in the rural districts of, of, of Oklahoma. Um, they're in the re on the reservations. And we just have to make sure we create pathways of, so that these young people can see the possibilities and say, I can be an engineer and I'll pursue it. Beautifully said. Dr. Reed, I appreciate you taking the time out to share all of these great things that are currently going on in the field. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, please let me know how we can be of assistance. Um, I celebrate this work. And uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're looking to make um, our world a better place. Thank you so much to Dr. Reed for joining me today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to share it wherever you'd like and subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. Next week, I'll be back with a conversation with Cara Jackson about the role of research in improving schools. Until then, be safe, be healthy, and please wear a mask.